The new sound system is not working. If the, lead, if the lead pastor doesn't click the microphone from off to on, the sound system doesn't work, no matter how much it costs to put it in. Anyway, um, it's great, great to see you. I'll start again. Before we jump into the sermon this morning, I think we just need to celebrate something. A couple weeks ago, I was at an ordination service. Uh, many of us here on staff were, and we got to witness our very own David Dorner be ordained as a pastor in the Wesleyan Church. And so I think we just need to congratulate and say thank you to him. Uh, he is now Reverend David Dorner, although he doesn't want you to call him that. Please don't, don't use it. None of us really like that uh, kind of thing, um, title or anything, but there won't be any cake in the narthex or anything like that today. Uh, but we do just want to say, David, how incredibly proud we are of you and excited for the ministry and all that God is doing through you and will do in the future. That's just an exciting thing when we see one of our own take a step like that. So I'll get into what we're going to be talking about today like this. I grew up on the west side of Indianapolis, in the suburbs of Indianapolis, and I had a younger sister named Christy, and when I was seven years old and Christy was six years old, uh, one day we were outside playing in the backyard, and she announces, I think I'm going to run away from home. And with that, she literally stands up, walks to the gate in our backyard, and opens it up, and then she just walked out the gate. And I didn't really want to run away from home, that really wasn't what I wanted to do in that moment. But I felt like, you know, I'm the older brother, like I should go along with her to protect her. In fact, that's still my story I'm sticking to all these years later. I wanted to go along in order to protect her. And so I have this memory of going to the gate, opening it, and walking out, following my sister, and we both ran away from home in the west side of Indianapolis. And it was actually kind of a boring time. Like nothing really happened. It wasn't all that exciting. We walked around for what seemed like a while to us. We cut through some yards. We said hello to some dogs, but nothing really all that exciting happened. And so finally, when we got bored enough, we decided, okay, well, it's, we should go back home. And so I remember we made our way back home. We weren't that far away where we couldn't figure out how to get back home. And as we got back to our house, our yard, I remember seeing this commotion that's going on. There are all these people there at our house. And what we discovered, my sister and I, is that for over an hour, we had been lost. I know, it's, it's crazy. It was, I, I didn't know we were lost. I didn't think we were lost. But apparently what had happened is sometime in that hour plus, my mother had walked out to a very quiet, empty backyard, and she had looked over and she had seen the gate standing open, and she had come to the conclusion, my children are lost. And when that happened, she had called out an all-out rescue operation. The police had been called and they had responded. Uh, neighbors had been notified and they were out searching. In fact, even by the time Christy and I got back to our house, we, there were still neighbors out in the neighborhoods wandering, calling our names. We never saw them, strangely enough, but for some reason, they were out there still looking for us. Friends had been invited over. Friends had been called to be a part of this search. And so we had no idea, but apparently we'd been lost. So I remember this like commotion. All these people jump up and we walk back in. People are clapping. People are cheering. People are hugging us. People are crying. It was awesome. <laughs> Until all those people left and then the whoopings began. And believe me, they, they were impactful. I remember that moment. But this all out rescue operation that had been called on our behalf said two things to me. The first thing it said to me was, you were lost. You didn't know you were lost, but you were lost. 
The second thing the rescue operation said to me is that you are valuable. When you go missing, people freak out. People interrupt their lives. They get out of their seats and they go searching for you. So here's the question I want to ask us in order to get us in this morning. And the question is this, do your neighbors, friends, and family know that they are valuable to God? Do your neighbors, do your friends, do your family, do they know that they matter to God? I would propose to you that if no one is out searching for them, probably not. Probably not. If you're just joining us, we're wrapping up right now a series we've been working our way through called Road Trip. So what we've been doing is in the New Testament, there are these books of the Bible, these letters that were written by the Apostle Paul, most of them from Rome where he was on house arrest. And they're titled Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And those were actual places in the ancient world where churches had been started. And so we've been taking a road trip around each one of those. And today we are wrapping up road trip. We are going to be traveling to the city of Colossae, where a church had been started and where Paul wrote the book Colossians to the church that was gathered there. And so if you could go ahead to that map. I want to just kind of tell you a little bit of the story of Colossae and how it got started. If you were here a couple weeks ago, you remember uh, David talking about Ephesus in the book of Ephesians. So Ephesus, you can kind of see there where Colossae is, and you can see just to the west of it, there's Ephesus. Paul, on his first missionary journey, he went to the city of Ephesus. In fact, he stayed there about three years. It's one of the longest places he stayed, and he brought the gospel. He began to preach, and people began to come to know Jesus and get baptized. And during that period of time, there was a guy by the name of Epaphras in Ephesus. And Epaphras received the gospel message. He received Jesus as Lord of his life. And then Epaphras took the gospel message 120 miles to the east to the city of Colossae. And he brought the gospel there and and he started a church there in the city of Colossae. And uh, Ephesus was the big town. If you were here a couple weeks ago, it was like the New York City. It was like the metropolis of the ancient world. Colossae was like the small town. It was on this trade route that went through the Lycus River Valley that was well known, and that's kind of what the town formed around. But by the time Paul was writing, it was very much kind of a small town. That's what it was. And Paul brings the gospel, or I mean, uh, Epaphras brings the gospel there. And the thing I want you to see with that is that the gospel never stayed in one place. If you read the book of Acts, it's you can't miss it. It just keeps showing up again and again and again. The gospel never stayed in one place. People kept going to the next place. They kept searching for the next group of people. There's never a point where it's like, okay, we're in Ephesus, we're in the big city, we've got this big church, awesome, hopefully all these people will find us. They always go searching for the next group of people. The gospel always goes searching for the next group of people, the next group of people, the next group of people who are lost even though they don't know it so that they can be rescued so they can be saved. In fact, my favorite thing about the book of Colossians is the way that Paul describes the gospel. His description of the gospel in Colossians is one of my favorites in all the Bible. So this is how he describes the gospel as he writes in Colossians 1 to the church there in Colossae. Verse 1 or verse 13 of chapter 1 he says this, for he has, in fact, let's just say these next two words together, for God has rescued us. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and who forgave our sins. 
So apparently there's something about the cross, there's something about what Jesus did on the cross that purchased our freedom and that forgave our sins and rescued us, transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And so if, if you wanna write something down, I, I invite you to write this down. The cross is a rescue operation. That's what it is. At its most basic, the gospel message is that the cross was and is today a rescue operation. Now, why does that matter? The reason it matters is because you and I, for the most part, we don't walk around most days feeling like we need to be rescued. We don't, I mean, most of the time, you're not walking around going, oh man, if only someone would rescue me, if only someone would save me. I mean, maybe some of you do. Maybe you came here today because you were feeling that way. And if you are in a place of desperation, you're saying, oh man, I have no doubt in my mind, if you turn to Jesus, he will rescue you, he will save you. But most of us, we don't have this sense, oh man, I wish someone would rescue me. We don't feel that way most of the time. Frederick Buechner is a famous theologian. He said, before the gospel can be good news, it first has to be bad news. What he meant by that was, we don't know we're lost. We don't know we're lost. We don't think our situation is really that bad. We don't think that our sin really has separated us from God who is a holy God and perfect in all his ways. And we don't believe even beyond that. We don't think our situation is that bad and we don't believe that God could actually be that good. And so what we do is we kind of turn the gospel into like a behavior modification program. It's like a diet or an exercise program. Like, hey, Jesus will come in your life and he'll help you become a little bit better. He'll help you work on some stuff. And here's what you need to understand. Jesus did not die on a cross so that your behavior could become a little bit better. Jesus died on the cross because you needed to be rescued from your old life of sin and death and you needed to be given an entirely new life and Jesus is the only one who could do that for you. That's the gospel. It's a rescue operation that God loved us that much. And Jesus died so that we could be brought into this whole new life. And so what Paul does for the rest of the book of Colossians then is he begins to just go through this rescue operation and talk about what it looks like. Go ahead briefly, kind of look at this. In 2.6, he, he talks about receive Jesus as Lord. We've talked about this many times before. How do you enter into the rescue? How do you say yes to the rescue? What we have to do is we have to come to this place where we realize we're lost. We confess our sins and we realize we need a savior. Jesus came as a savior and his name, the name Jesus means God saves because we needed to be saved. And so we confess him as Lord of our lives. We, we ask him to save us and we make him Lord. Then he goes on from there, verse 12, he says, be baptized. Talks about we're buried with Christ in baptism just, and, and just like Jesus died to his old life, when we go down the water, we die to our old lives. And just as Jesus rose from the grave, when we come out of the waters of baptism, we're saying, I'm living this new life. By the way, here at Frontline, our next baptism service is October 6th. There are some of you in this room right now, your next step is you need to get baptized. That's your next move that you need to make is to go public with your faith in Jesus and to get baptized. So that's October 6th for us. So he receive him as Lord, be baptized. And then in uh, verse, go ahead to the next one there. In verse 16, he, he begins to talk about, don't let anyone suck you back into religion. 
You remember the ladder if you were here a couple weeks ago? We had the ladder and we talked about sometimes religion becomes kind of like this, this ladder that we climb. If I do enough good things, I can reach God at the top of it. But the, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus came down the ladder to rescue us and to save us. It's nothing on our own merit. And so Paul says, don't let yourself get sucked back into the traditions of man, back into like, oh, this rule, I gotta be this way, I gotta be that way, and that'll save me or rescue me. And then in chapter three, he says, be transformed in the way you live. The big fancy word that we give this process is sanctification. But the language Paul actually uses is, he says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed of every kind. There's this whole list. And then he says, clothe yourself with Jesus. Like literally put on the person of Jesus in everything you do and just be transformed in the way you live. And then, at kind of at the height of this whole passage where he's talking about transformation, in verse 11, he says, see others the way that Christ actually sees them. Let your rescue so impact you that you begin to look out. It's like an inside-out transformation where you begin to see other people the way that Christ actually sees them. In fact, go ahead, let's just look at verse 11 together. Uh, Colossians 3.11, he, he says, in this new life, this new life in Jesus, it does not matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. So he's describing this, this rescue that transforms us. And then what happens is it allows us to see others the way Christ sees them. Go ahead to that next uh, slide. So Jesus transforms the way we see ourselves first, and then with the way we see ourselves, the way we see others. So what happens is we, when, once we realize we were lost and we become rescued, what happens is we start to see other people not as our competition, not as our enemies, or not as people that we're trying to use in our lives. We get, begin to see other people, and we begin to see other people are lost, just like we were lost even though they don't even know it. Maybe they don't even realize it. And we begin to want that same rescue for other people just the same way we were rescued. And that, that's how Paul talks about the gospel. And then he begins to reorder all of our relationships around the person of Jesus. So Jesus is master and Lord. And so then he begins to speak to all the other relationships we have. He talks to husbands and wives there in the last part of Colossians 3. And he he talks about what does it mean to have Jesus at the center of your marriage? So your marriage is no longer about you. It's no longer about me trying to get my own needs met, me trying to manipulate my spouse or one-up them or win in some kind of fight or argument or whatever. It's Jesus is the center of our marriage and we're mutually submitted to Jesus. It's about him. He goes on, he begins to talk to parents and children and he begins to ask, what does it look like to have Jesus at the center of your family? in the way that you parent, in the way that you make decisions together as a family. And then he goes on and he, he even begins to talk to masters and slaves. And he begins to talk about what does it mean to have Jesus at the center of that relationship too, of masters and slaves. Seriously, he really does. Go ahead, let's, let's look at that together. This is Colossians 4.1. It says, masters, be just and fair to your slaves. Remember that you also have a master in heaven. So Jesus is Lord of our lives. He's master, but, but care about the way that you treat your slaves, masters, because you have a master. We're all mutually submitted to Christ. 
Now, I just want to be really clear here about something. Paul in this moment is not approving of slavery, okay? He's not saying, hey, slavery is a great thing. I affirm it. What Paul is actually doing here is he's just acknowledging a situation that happened in this culture all the time. Here's what we know about the city of Colossae. What we know about Colossae is that at the time Paul wrote this letter, somewhere between 30 to 50%, some scholars actually say one in two people were slaves in the city of Colossae. Slavery was normal. It was just an everyday occurrence. And Paul knows that. And that's why he speaks to that situation in the book of Colossians, in the letter he writes. So some people actually say that like poor families in that community, they would, they would actually sell their children into slavery as a way of providing for them. They would sell their children to, to wealthier families as a way to take care of them and make, help them have a better life. Slavery was just normal. That, that uh, trade route I was talking about along the Lycus River Valley that ran right by Colossae, the main thing that was traded on that trade route was people, slaves were traded on that. That is exactly what that was. And so Paul is speaking into that situation because it was so prevalent in that day. In fact, the, way, the reason he says it to the church is because that situation was even happening inside the church. How do we know that? Because there's a story that comes to us from the New Testament, from this time in the city of Colossae. When Epaphras went from, Ephes from the city of Ephesus and he came to Colossae and he started the church in Colossae and brought the gospel, there was a guy there by the name of Philemon. Philemon was a Roman citizen. He was a wealthy uh, person who owned land and owned property there in the city of Colossae. And so this guy Philemon accepts Christ and then what happens is the church that got started in Colossae, the church actually begins to meet in his house. So it's in his house, in, at his estate, that's where the church is gathered and are meeting. And so what we know is that, that he was a leader in the church. Philemon was wealthy. He was a Roman citizen. The other thing we know about him is that he was a slave owner. Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus. And Onesimus somehow gets free from Philemon. And somehow he manages to make his way all across the ancient world and somehow he finds Paul in a Roman, on house, in house arrest in Rome. And when he meets Paul in Rome, that's when he accepts Jesus. He hears about Jesus for the first time. He accepts Christ. He becomes a Christian. And then what Paul does is Paul writes the letter of Philemon. It's a short personal letter to Philemon. He sends it with Onesimus back to Colossae. And the letter says, Philemon, I, I want you to accept Onesimus. He's become a Christian. He's become a follower of Jesus. And I want you to welcome him back to the church in Colossae as your brother, not as a slave. Okay, you're not getting it yet. You're, you're, you're looking at me, you're all kind of like, all right, so, so let, let me help you out. I'm gonna, help, I'm gonna do this again and, and try to help you get this. Okay, look at the map here one more time. There's Colossae, you see Colossae? Onesimus is a slave in the house of the man where the church meets in Colossae. So he's literally serving as a slave in the house where the church meets. He's at the church, he's in the church all the time and he never hears the gospel. He has no idea who Jesus is. 
Onesimus has to go from Colossae all the way. Do you see Rome up there all the way at the top left of the screen? He has to go literally to what people thought of as the ends of the earth in the ancient world at this time, all the way to Rome to find Paul in house arrest in Rome before he finally hears the gospel and learns about Jesus and is rescued by Christ. Now, there are a couple theories of how he got there. There are some people who believe what happened is that Colossae, this is based on some things that are said in the letter of Philemon. Some people think that what happened was Onesimus was kind of a bad guy and he stole some money from his master, Philemon, and then he ran away and somehow, magically, we don't really know how, somehow he just happened to make it all the way to Rome and somehow managed to find Paul in house arrest there in Rome. There are other people who think that's kind of far-fetched. That seems a a little far-fetched to believe that. So there are other scholars who believe, and I'll be honest with you, I think this is also much more likely, that what happened is Philemon and Onesimus had some sort of a fight, some sort of a breakdown. And Philemon was sick of him. And so what Philemon did is he took advantage of that trade route through the Lycus River Valley, and he sent Onesimus to Paul. From Colossae, he sent him all the way to Rome to Paul so that Paul could then sell Onesimus as a slave and get money to support himself there on house arrest. Why would, we, why would he do that? What we know is that Rome at this time in history had the greatest slave market in the entire ancient world. You could quite literally get more money for a slave selling them in Rome than you could in any other city anywhere else in the ancient world. And so what happens is Onesimus is sent. Philemon sends Onesimus to Paul so Paul can receive him, so Paul can sell him as a slave and make some money on him. And what Paul does is instead is when Onesimus comes to him, instead Paul does not sell him as a slave. Instead, Paul is like, hey, have you heard about Jesus? (laughs) And he hears the gospel for the first time. And then what Paul does is he turns him around and he says, okay, you're not gonna be sold as a slave. You are going back to your home. You're going back to Colossae. He writes this letter to, to Philemon and he says, Philemon, This is Onesimus. He's coming back. He's going to be back at the church there in Colossae. And you are to welcome him as your brother in Christ. He's no longer a slave. That is powerful. He was rescued and redeemed and welcomed back into the church. How is it possible that Onesimus was right there in the church of Colossae? Right there in the home where the church met. And he never heard the gospel. At, at this point in the sermon, if you've been paying attention, you're thinking to yourself, well, it's because that guy, Philemon, he was a jerk, <laughs> right? I mean, what a jerk that he did this to this poor guy. But that's actually not true. Hang on a minute. I want you to listen to the way that Paul addresses Philemon. Philemon is one chapter long. So we're going to look at verses four through seven. This is how Paul describes Philemon when he greets him in his letter to him. He says this, I always thank my God when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. And I am praying that you will put into action the generosity that comes from from your faith as you understand and experience all the good things that we have in Christ. Your love has given me much joy and comfort, my brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. See, Philemon had faith in Jesus. He just missed it when it came to Onesimus. 
He had, uh, Philemon was generous to the poor. That whole line about your, you know, generosity is oftentimes, you know, refresh the hearts of God's people. That's a reference to financial giving. He was a giver. He was generous to the poor. He just missed it when it came to Onesimus. He had a love for God's people. Paul says so. He just didn't see the gospel applying to that person in that situation. Could it be that there is someone in your life, maybe someone in your own backyard who is lost and you just don't see it? You just missed it? You're around them all the time. Your life intersects with their life all the time and they are lost. They are in need of the rescue operation, but you just missed it. It happened in Colossians. It happened in the city of Colossae, I should say, and it happens still today. So I wanna take you back to the west side of Indianapolis for a minute. My sister and I, we found our way back home on our own. I mean, yes, we were lost, technically. My mom thought we were lost. But really, we were just a few neighborhoods away. And we knew the way back. We, we walked far enough that we understood how to get back from there. And we managed to find our way back on our own. I was a brother back then. I'm a father now. Uh, my wife, Carrie, and I have four boys. I, I've said this to you before. Our third son, Aaron, has autism. And at this, this is not true anymore. At this stage, he's developed so much and grown so much. This isn't true today. But when, uh, when our children were younger, Aaron was a flight risk whenever we would go out anywhere in public. I mean, quite literally, like when we'd be out at a restaurant or out in public anywhere at some event, even sometimes at church events or whatever, the social pressure of that w- would be such that Aaron would just run away. And when, I mean, he was a little boy. When I say he ran away, I mean, he literally, he would just take off running. He would run straight across the street without looking. He would just run and he would just keep going and keep going until someone stopped him. I mean, his life was in danger when he would disappear like that. So I have these memories, these like heart attack inducing memories where I feel like I've almost died multiple times where we were out in public together and we would look around and Aaron would just be gone and this panic would rise up inside of us and we would just go, go find him. We got to find him right now. And I, I literally have memories of like running, you know, across the street, running. There would be total strangers. And I would interrupt them while they were talking to each other. And I would say, have you seen a little boy? He's about this tall, brown hair, blue eyes. Have you seen? I would just go crazy looking for him. I remember this one time we were sitting at a, like a restaurant and Aaron went missing. I don't know why I used to take them out, all four of them by myself. That was stupid. And I look around and Aaron was gone. He took off running. I remember saying to my, my other three boys, go, go find him. Just get up, go find him. Run. Now you have to understand, in that moment, it wasn't that I loved my other three boys any less. In fact, in that moment, if one of my boys would have, they never did this, but if they would have stopped me in that moment of panic and said, Dad, we're still here. Three out of four in bad, right? (laughs) Don't you love us? Don't, isn't it enough? Don't, Don't we matter to you? We're still here. If I could have answered them in that moment, what I would have said was, of course you matter to me. Of course I love you just as much as I love him, but you're not lost. He is lost. And what I know is that unlike you, he will not find his way back on his own. 
If someone does not go find him, he's gone. Literally, he's gone. My friends, in Grand Rapids right now, there are people who are lost. They don't even know they're lost, but they're lost. The reality is, for many of them, they're going to find their way back on their own. They are. They, they have the social relationships. They have the context. They have the history. They know the way back, and eventually they're going to find their way back on their own. There is another group of people in Grand Rapids, people who you know, sometimes people who are in your own backyard, who are in your own family maybe, and they are lost, and they will not find their way back on their own. If someone doesn't find them, they're gone. That's where you come in. God, the Father, loves them just as much as he loves you and he wants it to wreck you that those people are lost, that they are out there and that, that somebody has to go searching for them. Somebody has to go looking for them. How will they even know that they're lost unless someone is going, someone is looking for them? And he wants it to wreck you to the point where it would inconvenience you. That it would cause you to get out of your comfort zone a little bit and put yourself in a position where you would go and you would join the rescue operation and you would go and join the search until zero people are left unchanged by Jesus. That's the heart of the Father. Not three out of four is good enough. We've got mostly everybody here. The heart of the Father is that the zero people would be left. That's what he's after. That's what he wants. And so the challenge, as the band begins to make their way back up, the challenge that I want to leave you with and I want us to think about is what does it look like for you to raise your level of rescue urgency for one person? What does it look like for you to begin to raise your level of rescue urgency for just one person? Here's what I know. For many of you, tomorrow, August 26th, you're going back to school. Uh, some of you already are back in school. You've already been back in school for the last week. Parents, kids, you're going back to school, you're going back to work, fall sports are starting up again. You are going to be around people in relational contexts all the time. What does it look like for you to allow God to raise your rescue operation urgency for one person? You can't save anybody. That's not what God's asking you to do. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can save anybody. But what does it look like for you to begin to to enter in and to join the rescue operation. Who is your Onesimus? Some of the language we've used in the past is who is your one life? Who is that one person that God would lay on your heart that's in your relational context and they are lost. They are as lost as you were and they don't even know it. They don't even see it. But you, the fact that you've been rescued allows you to see it. You can see it even if they can't. And what does it look like for you to begin to want something for them? to begin to desire something for them, to want for them to become rescued, to see Christ be formed in their life or for them to become a part of what God's doing in the whole world, the redemption of all things. What does it look like for you to begin to lean into that? Who is your Onesimus? Paul closes the letter to the Colossian church before his final greetings. The last command he gives is in chapter four, verse five and six. He says this, Live wisely among those who are not believers. 
as you go back to school, as you go back to work, sports, anything, live wisely among those who are not believers and make the most of every opportunity. Those lost people, they are not your burden, they are your greatest opportunity for your own growth. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. I'll close with this. A couple weeks ago, as a church, we did this community picnic at Heartside Park. Many of you were there, you, you remember that day. And so we went down to Heartside Park and we just began to minister to the people there and had a community picnic as the church. And um, while we were there, one of our volunteers, her name is Anya. And Anya and her family used to be a part of Frontline for years and years. They live in Byron Center now, and they are part of the Center Church in Byron Center. And so since we're together as part of this collective, uh, our, we met in the middle, our church is partnered together. So Anya was there serving as a volunteer that day. And as she's walking along, this woman from Hartside Park, this woman who obviously lives down there, stops her. And this woman is trying to communicate something to Anya. And Anya very quickly realizes uh, this lady is deaf and she's using sign language and she's trying to, to communicate with her, but Anya doesn't, she doesn't understand. She doesn't understand sign language. She doesn't understand what she's saying. And so this lady just starts to get more and more agitated and she's signing. She's trying to say something to Anya and Anya looks around and she doesn't see anybody from, from our deaf community, part of Frontline who's there. And so this lady's just getting more and more agitated, more and more agitated. And so finally Anya stops her and she just, she makes a heart like this with her hands and she points at her and she does it again. She just keeps doing it. And tears begin to stream down this lady's face. And Anya reaches out and she just embraces her. There's some things that communicate in any language. And Anya told us that story, our staff, after the event. And to hear Anya tell the story, I'm not sure who got more out of that interaction, the lady or Anya. Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you know how to respond to anyone. Lost people are your greatest opportunity. They're not your burden because the gospel is a rescue operation. And it doesn't stop until everyone is reached. It leaves no one behind, no one. So Jesus, right now, what I am asking for in this room is that you would put on side each one of our minds a face, a name, would you just plant inside of our lives and inside of our minds a face, someone who is lost, someone who is valuable to the Father, who will not find their way back on their own. And Jesus, would you begin to just speak to us what, about what it looks like to communicate? Would you give us compassion to know how to reach out? Would you give us language to use, even if we don't know what language to use? By your Holy Spirit, would you just help us to know how to invite them to church, how to speak into their life, how to, how, maybe for some of us, maybe it's just listen, how to really listen, ask them how they're doing and just listen. God, would you allow us to be Christ to those people? God, what we are asking for is nothing less than a revival in our land. 
that the rescue operation, God, would you show us who in our lives is right in our backyard that we don't think the rescue operation applies to? Maybe it's somebody even that we've given up on, a mother or father, a sister, a brother, a friend. And would you just reignite us with the fact that we were lost and you rescued us and your rescue keeps going forth. The church never stayed in one place. The gospel just kept going to the next group of people, the next group of people, the next group of people. Would you light that kind of a fire in us until we see zero people living unchanged for Jesus? And we ask this in your resurrected and powerful name, Jesus. And everybody said, 